Thank you for tuning in to the City Light West Council Bluff Sermon Podcast. We are a church that exists to multiply disciples and churches that is located in Council Bluffs, Iowa. If you want to learn more about our church, visit citylightwestcb.org or follow us on Facebook at City Light West Council Bluffs and Instagram at City Light West CB. Good morning, City Light. My name is Ken and I get to be one of the pastors here. How many of y'all are ready for Christmas season? Woo! Yes. How many people favorite holiday is Christmas? Let me see. A good amount, but not as many as I thought. Not a lot of uh, a lot of heathens in here. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but we have hit that time of year, uh, Christmas time. And for a lot of us, like, we're planning our southward vacations right now. A lot of us, uh, after being hit by that snow last week, we're digging through our drawers to find our old hats and gloves and preparing for the Christmas season. For a lot of us, we're preparing for family to come into town. We've got work Christmas parties. We got Christmas decorating. We got to hang some lights. We got to do some Christmas shopping. Like Christmas season can become a little bit of a whirlwind, if uh, if we're honest. Like, as we get older, as we become adults, the Christmas season is less about the fun and the excitement, the anticipation, and it's more about all the things that are happening. At least to me, it feels like the Christmas season is one of the most chaotic, crazy, busy seasons of the year. But it wasn't always that way. Like, I can look back to the simpler times of childhood where Basically, as soon as we were done eating turkey on Thanksgiving, we're breaking out the J.C. Penny catalog. And we're laying on the ground and we're circling, for the young people in the room, a catalog. Um, it's, it's like Amazon on paper. Is that a good way to say it? I don't know. you got to mail in your order. It's, it's crazy. Uh, and so we would... But we're looking forward. We're so excited for Christmas to come. We're dreaming about our, our presence. We're dreaming about getting out of school. We're dreaming about that whole Christmas break, about maybe we get to build a snowman or go sledding. It used to be Christmas was less about the chaos and more about the anticipation of the coming celebration. As the gifts started to pile up under the tree, the number of school days until break got smaller and smaller. And as the days grew shorter and shorter, the anticipation grows because I knew that Christmas was coming soon. And as followers of Jesus, that kind of waiting, that feeling of anticipation is what should be cultivated inside of our souls as we await our Christmas Eve celebration. Historically, we're in this uh, church in the church calendar it's called the season of advent and that is the four Sundays before Christmas and historically this is a season in the church we are where we are intended to identify with the waiting of the Israelites in the Old Testament who were waiting for the coming of their savior of their Messiah it's a season in which we should be longing and yearning with expectation for the coming of the savior The term Advent comes from a Latin word that means coming. And during this season, we are intended to slow down and to cultivate longing in our hearts for God and look forward and long for his coming again. 
And so what we're planning to do on each week of Advent over the next three weeks, and then as we get into Christmas Eve, we're going to be talking about a famous Christmas carol. uh, And then we're going to find where that song is rooted in the Bible and how those passages point us to the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus. And because the purpose of Advent is the anticipation, the longing for the coming of Jesus, I think it's only fitting we start with the song that we began our gathering with this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This song is one of the oldest Christmas carols that we sing. It was translated in the 12th century uh, from a Latin carol that came from even earlier, like the monks used to chant this song for centuries. And most of the images we find in this song come from the book of Isaiah. And each of the verses of the song highlight a different aspect of who Jesus is. This is a song of anxious longing, a song of heartfelt anticipation, a song of waiting in which the author and all those who are singing along are invited into a yearning for the coming of the Son of God to rescue them from slavery, to unite the divided world, to bring comfort in to the morning and to overcome evil once and for all. And this is what we're all invited into this morning. In the book of Isaiah, we see some of these themes themes uh, parsed out a little bit. Isaiah is a prophetic book written by the prophet Isaiah, and he begins the book by warning the Israelites that their rebellion against God is going to lead to their demise if they do not repent. Their sin will bring destruction if they do not turn to God. Isaiah 1, 4 through 5 says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. Throughout the entire book, this prophet is telling Israel, hey, your sin is leading you towards destruction. Turn back to God because you're not headed in a good direction. If you continue down this road, it's not going to be good for you. And so Isaiah is reminding the Israelites over and over throughout his book who are, if you're willing, like, if you're willing to turn back to God, God will accept you back in and God will wipe your slate clean. He will forgive you. Isaiah tells them over and over to repent, to turn around from their rebellion and turn back to God, who is eager to welcome them back into the fold. Isaiah 1, 18 through 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And as the book goes on, no matter how many times Isaiah warns the Israelites to repent, they will not listen, they will not obey the Lord. And because of that, their sin will have massive consequences. Namely, they will be conquered by their enemies and exiled from their land. And sure enough, that's exactly what we see happen in Isaiah 39. Their sin leads them to destruction by the Assyrians. But although this seemingly bad news Isaiah brings, all all through it, there is this little seed of hope. 
That hope is that of a king that will come, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7, 14, that Jordan read earlier. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so these Israelites who found themselves defeated by the Assyrians, oppressed by their captors and exiled from their home, the idea that God would send a Messiah to save them, that God himself would be Emmanuel, God with us, was something that gave them hope to keep them faithful. This this leftover people, all those who had not been completely destroyed, the remnant of faithful Israelites, this is what held them on to hope in times of great evil, in times of trials, when, when they're faced with temptations, when they don't have the strength to carry on. The idea that God would be with them was a powerful thing. And I think in the same way for us, when we are facing trials, temptations, and evils, what we need to know more than anything is the power of the presence of God. It reminds me when I used to go out to the movie theater. I have a a toddler now, so we don't do that anymore. But back when I was a younger man, when I had no responsibilities, like back when I was in high school or something, I would go to the theater with my friends and I would often get dragged to a scary movie. And now I have a real love-hate relationship with scary movies because I get scared. And my friends know this, and they find it very entertaining to watch me watch the movie. And so I would always find myself on a Friday or Saturday night at the AMC being like, oh, what movie are we going to pick? I was like, oh, can we already bought tickets. Oh, did you? <laughs> I knew things were not going to go well for me there. And so I would go into the movie, and like I said, I'm a scaredy cat. I get wrapped up into it, and I get freaked out. But I knew how my night was going to go from there on. Was I going to sleep with the lights on? Or was I not going to sleep at all? Or was I going to be able to get a nice nap? The way I knew whether how I was going to react the rest of the night was based on did I drive myself to the theater? Because if I didn't, that means I'm hitching a ride back with somebody else. That is the power of presence. (laughs) When we know that we are not alone, It eases the fear. What would even be better if I got home and my dad had the lights on and he was sitting at the kitchen table like, okay, I can take a deep breath. I can like have a conversation. Just knowing that someone else was there actually helped ease my fear and ease my anxiety for the dark nights to come. (laughs) That is the power of presence. The simple idea that we are not alone. And not only that, but the God of the universe, the one who created the sun and the stars, who carved out the oceans and raised up the mountains, who painted the sunset and placed the galaxies in the sky, that God is with us. What is there to fear when we know that God is with us? This is the calming, stabilizing, reassuring power of God's presence, his nearness to us. This is the power of Emmanuel. And the Israelites needed this assurance in this time. Because even though it was a result of their own rebellion, the Israelites live in a world of evil. Their exile began with multiple military sieges that led to their fall. And right there, like, war itself is enough to cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Me and Jordan 
recently finished up a series on Netflix called Band of Brothers. It's a series of, uh, it's a short series that follows a group of paratroopers in World War II, starts with D-Day and ends all the way with their return home. And as you follow their story, it does what a good story does. It tells you stories about the characters and you get captured in. But the conversations that me and Jordan would have about this show was way less about what happened to certain characters and who did what and just about the evil and, and grisly, hellish nature of war itself. As you're watching the screen, you're seeing the brutality and hellishness of war. We have friends carrying off other friends from the battlefield. Wives and children becoming widows by the thousands. Innumerable cases of PTSD, which would manifest in a thousand different ways. Even those who made it home brought all the trauma home with them. And that World War II picture for the Israelites is even more apt as I read uh, there's a history podcaster named Dan Carlin who described the Assyrians as ancient Nazis this week. The Assyrians, the people who overthrew the Israelites were cruel, cruel people, flaying off the skin of their enemies, placing their heads on stakes. They were incredibly militaristic. Their goal was to strike as much fear into their hearts of their enemies as possible. And this is the land into which the Jews were exiled. They were far from home, ripped, ripped away from their families, held captive in the midst of unrecognized, uh, unrecognizable evil, exiled in a far away place. No doubt they were filled with fear, anxiety, doubt, and despair. They were desperate for God to come and be Emmanuel, for God to be with them. The promise of the coming of God was the foundation on which they built their hope. And much like the ancient Israelites, we too live in a world marred by evil. We're seeing absolute devastation in front of our own eyes as we watch wars in Israel, Palestine, Russia, Ukraine. But there's also a dozen other wars happening right now that are not being covered by cable news every night. Wars in Sudan, Ethiopia, Myanmar, Somalia, well over 100,000 deaths happened just this year because of wars going on all around the world. Soldiers and civilians alike being killed, men and women becoming widows, parents burying their children, millions being left scarred both physically and mentally. It's happening each and every day in the world around us. And if we want to talk about captivity in our world, there's over 50 million people around the world who are right now stuck in slavery. Slavery is not something of the past. This is a problem right now. And if we want to continue to recount the statistics of the evil in our world, about 2 billion people don't have access to clean drinking water, which causes about 1 million deaths a year. In the same vein, 24,000 people a day die of starvation. We don't tend to have a full comprehension of the worldwide suffering because we don't see these things around us every day, but we also do live in a country where 25 million people are alcoholics or drug addicts, where one in six people live with a mental health condition, and almost 50,000 people take their lives every year. Do we, do we want to zoom a little closer into our own personal lives? I mean, we've all experienced or known people who've struggled through chronic illness, relational strife, financial instability, uncertainty about the future, and even death of both young and old, sick and healthy, expected, unexpected. We live in a world, we inhabit a time and place that is ravaged by the effects of sin. This is the reality that caused David to cry out in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? 
This is what causes all of creation to moan with eager anticipation for the coming of the Lord in Romans 8. The destruction of sin is what causes John to say in the very last verse of the entire Bible, come Lord Jesus, come. This is why this, there's aching inside of our soul knowing that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And through it all, we have the same hope that God gave the Israelites in Isaiah, that a Messiah, a Savior will come, a King. God himself will come to earth to set everything right. And as we walk through the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we see these titles for who Jesus is. And the first one is Emmanuel. We have hope because Jesus is our Emmanuel, that God has not left us floundering in a lost and broken world. He's not left us to fend for ourselves. Like what other religion, what other God can claim that? That they actually came in physical form and walked among us. We have a God who has not left us on our own. He actually came and dwelled with us. He walked this world, faced temptation, and yet he did not fall into that temptation. He lived a perfect life, a life that we could never live, so that on the cross he could exchange his perfectness, his righteousness for our sin. And in his resurrection we can be assured that he will never leave us, and he will never forsake us, because he's given us a piece of himself to live in us in the Holy Spirit. He is always and forever Emmanuel, God with us for those who follow him. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never leave us on our own. He will always be with us. And as we continue through, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we see Jesus called the day spring, which is translated from the Latin phrase that means the dawn or the daybreak or the rising sun. And in this title, Jesus is seen as the newly come light of the world who has come to rid the world of darkness and introduce hope, life, and light, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shown. We can find hope and strength in Jesus because the light of the world has come to dispel the darkness, to dispel the despair, to dispel the depression, and give you life in him. And we see Jesus as the desire of nations. This one actually comes from Haggai, not Isaiah. But I will shake all nations. All what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Jesus is the desire of nation, the one who unites all mankind in worship to him. We're people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, although separated by time, space, language, political affiliation, theological persuasion, or economic strata, all are invited to come and have new life in him. To be united under his rule. To end the strife, to end the fighting, to end the discord between one another, the division. He's called all of us to unite in one song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We will all bow before the throne of the one who saved us in praise and adoration to him. Because he is the desire of nations. The one who breaks discord and unites us all. And Jesus is also the root of Jesse that Isaiah talks about in 11.10. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is just talking about Jesus being the king over all. 
throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites are waiting for a coming king who will rule them with power and wisdom. A king who will keep them safe and secure from their enemies and defeat their oppressors. A king in the line of David, son of Jesse, who would be for them a conquering, reigning king. And that is exactly who Jesus is. He is king over all kings, king over all creation. There's nothing or no one outside of his rule and reign. There's nothing outside of his control or authority. There's nothing that can defeat him or overtake him. And this is most clearly seen in his resurrection, where although men tried their darndest to get rid of him, Although he was killed on a cross, the worst thing a man can do to you is to kill you. Three days later, he was raised from the dead with all power in his hands, holding the keys of death and hell, overcomer of sin and Satan. The root of Jesse stands himself as the glory of God incarnate, the king over all kings, the king over all creation. That is who Jesus is. That is who our God is. God with us, a source of light and life, the unification of our world, the fulfillment of our deepest desire, and the ruling reigning king over everything. He is what our hearts long for. He is our sure, steadfast, faithful father who will never leave us, and he is the only hope for a decaying and dying world. And that's why we cry out, with creations from generations past and generations to come. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Ransom your captive Israel. Rescue your people who are exiled in this broken world. Come thou dayspring, like cheer our spirits and rid the world of the dark clouds of despair and death. Come, desire of nations, unite the hearts of all mankind. Stop the wars, stop the hate, stop the division. Come, thou rod of Jesse, free us from the tyranny of Satan. Rescue us from the consequences of our sin and give us victory over death itself. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. And here is why as a church, although we talk about how broken the world is and how much we need this hope in Jesus, we can rejoice because we know he has answered that prayer. We know that Jesus has come. 2,000 years ago, a man showed up in Jerusalem and he was killed on a cross. He proclaimed to be Messiah. He was doing all these miracles and the Romans nailed him up to a cross. And yet three days later, his grave was empty. And he appeared to hundreds of people proclaiming the gospel that he has come to set things right. That he has come to forgive his people for their sins. That he has come to welcome in the outsiders and heal the broken. That is what he's done. So we, we can rejoice in the fact that Emmanuel has come. And in his resurrection, he gives us the Holy Spirit to walk with us and to continue to remind us of whose we are, that we are his. And because he answered this prayer once, we can be assured that when he promises to answer it again, he will come through on that promise. When we cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're grateful for his first coming, for what he did on the cross to reconcile us to God the way he's fulfilled all these things for us spiritually with God now, but also we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, so that our hearts are yearning for his coming again to where he can set everything right and he can set his kingdom on earth where addiction will be things of the past, 
where funerals will be things of the past, where he will wipe every tears from our eye. Even the tools of war will be formed into tools of peace, where no longer will we destroy one another, but we will actually cultivate this good earth that God gave us. And he will cover the whole earth as the water covers the sea. We rejoice this morning because we're on the other side of his first coming. And because he's done that, we know he will fulfill what he's promised to us in his second coming. It's no wonder Isaiah tells the Israelites in chapter 54, verse 1, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. How can we sing in this broken world we live in? Although we do inhabit a world marred by sin and although we continue to fight against our own sin and we continue to face trials and temptation, we know our cries of Emmanuel to come and heal our world. Those cries do not go unanswered because he came once. He will come again to finish the work he started so that we no longer have to cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We can cry, praise God for the dwelling place of God is with man. And so we take communion every week to remind ourselves of Jesus' first coming, what he did when he came the first time, where he bore our sin on the cross, where he forgave our iniquity. If we would simply trust in his death for the forgiveness of our sins and follow him, he promises to wipe our slate clean and to give us new life in his resurrection. He promises to unite us as a family of God underneath himself, underneath himself. But then we also look forward to his second coming when he will come again and the ruling reigning king will reign as as though a, a lamb that was slain. We will forever be remembering what he's done for us in communion for all of eternity as our king sits on the throne. And so this morning, as we take communion, as we break the bread, which represents his body that was broken us, as we dip it in the juice, which represents his blood shed for us, Let us be hopeful, reminded of Jesus' first coming. And let's also uh, hold on to the fact that he is coming again. And for those in this room who say like, man, I don't even know this Jesus. I don't know what it means to walk with Jesus. Man, the, the invitation for you this morning is open. Just like it was to the people in Isaiah. If you would just turn to God, confess your sin, and turn away from it and follow him. You can be made new this morning. You can be wiped. Your sin can be wiped clean. You can have new life in the person of Jesus. You can be reconciled to God. And if you want that this morning, man, I invite you to come take communion. There's nothing standing in your way. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, all are invited in to be forgiven and to be given new life in him. So in just a moment, we're going to take communion. But first, I just want to pray for us. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is not intended to serve as a substitute for gathering with a local body of believers, but as a resource that encourages and empowers you to follow Jesus as your heart is pointed towards the gospel. If you want to learn more about our church, visit citylightwestcb.org.